All right, very good. Take, go ahead and take your Bibles tonight and turn to Matthew chapter 8. We want to continue this morning, from this morning, what we talked about, about faith. Now, this is a rhetorical question, but not really. So, whatever that means. All right, so if I were to ask you today, um, if I were to ask you tonight, you know, what are some ways that you live by faith? What are some ways that you live by faith? Now, let me, let me show you what, how important this is. Let me go back. And by the way, have you ever had one of those aha moments in, in the Bible? Well, one of my favorite stories, in fact, I used the scripture at Brenda Hefner's service when we had her service last week. And it's just one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And it's the story of Enoch. Anybody know Enoch? Enoch from, from the old, 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 old Testament. You know, there are two, there's a, what, there are two people who, who didn't die. Okay, and that would be Enoch, and that would be Elijah. Elijah was taken up in a chariot of fire, and Enoch just simply wasn't. But here's, here's what, let me just read it to you. I thought it was pretty cool. And I constantly say, I never tied it together. Verse 7 says this. I'm sorry, verse 5. By faith, and this is Hebrews 11. We're not even going there tonight, but you want to turn, that's okay. Hebrews 11, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, that's just a beautiful picture of a Christian's death. Amen. You know, I love it. You know, I told them at Brenda's funeral, I said, you know, the bottom line is totally unexpected, unannounced. You know, Jesus just showed up on that Wednesday morning and said, Brenda, it's time to go home. And she didn't have any symptoms. There was a massive heart attack with no symptoms. And she was gone. Absent from the body, be present with the Lord. And really what happened to Enoch happens to each one of us. I love what my friend Jeremy says when we have breakfast. All the, well, not all the time. It's not like every day we, every Wednesday we show up and he goes, and you know, I believe God has the appointed death of, day of our death down. You know? But when it comes up, we talk about that, don't we, Jeremy? And, and we believe that, that God's in control. Cancer's not in control. Satan's not in control. God's in control. And, and somewhere out there is that day when God will say it's time for you to go home. And so that's what happened with Enoch. And, and the bottom line is, God just took him. They did not see death. But here's the amazing part. Here's the part I went, I've never really made that connection. Um, because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. That before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Now, the natural assumption of that is, and again, he lived a godly life. And the natural assumption is, that's exactly what it's saying. It's saying that Enoch was a man who, who was a, a God pleaser. He loved God and that he was not because God took him. And before he went, he had that testimony that he pleased God. And every one of us should have that testimony. I, I need to know something. Are y'all going to not say amen tonight? I'd save a lot of work if, if I know. He had this testimony that, that he pleased God. But now look at verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So when the writer of Hebrews says that before he went, before God took him, he had this testimony, please God, according to verse number six, without faith it is impossible to please God. They're trying to say that Enoch was a man of faith. How are we all saved? By faith. We're saved by grace through faith. How is it with Abraham? 
Abraham was saved because he believed God. He had faith in God. So what is it saying about Enoch? Not that he was a moral person, although I reckon he was. Not, not that he kept all the laws and did the God stuff, although he did. He's saying he was a man of faith. I don't think we understand just how big it is that we be a people of faith. That we walk and we talk by faith. And we've got to believe that God is, that God exists. And he's a rewarder of those who believe in him and those who seek him. So, if it's that important, you ask the question. Can you think of one way right now that you'd say, Well, Dwayne, I know I exercise faith by this. By this. Again, it's difficult in America because so many of us have so much. You know, in Africa or in Central Asia, you know, in Central Asia, they would probably pray that they would not have their head caught that day. Because when you're a Christ follower in a Muslim country, there's a good chance you're going to lose your head. Y'all really aren't going to say anything, are you? Okay, I promise you, I won't mention again. I won't mention again. I promise you, I promise you. Okay, in Africa, in Africa, you know, there again, whether Muslim or the fact is you may die in your sleep, they, they, they wake up by saying, you say, how did you rest last night? You know what they say? I woke up. Which means you survived another night. You survived another night. So we are so blessed in America, it may be difficult for some of us to say, this is how I exercise my faith. Now, one way, by the way, that should pop into our minds is our prayer life. You know, we should be a people of prayer, but a people who pray by faith. And, and every, frankly, every decision we make should be garnered in the eyes of faith. So unlike some of the other countries where, you know, where, where people live, it's more easily done to be a people of faith. Every one of us should be able to point to an area in our life where we say, this is where I exercise faith. Because one, we are a people of faith, whether we're extremely wealthy or not. Whether we make minimum wage or not, we should be a people of faith because that is how we please God. By believing Him and by trusting Him. So this morning, we looked at a wonderful example of, of God's sovereign grace and all of that. But we looked at a guy who crawled over the side of the boat. He was in the boat and, and you know, God, you know, Jesus says, if it's you, since it's you, just, just bid me come and I'll come. And Jesus said, come. And he crawled over the side of the boat. He sees an opportunity. Two people have walked on water, Jesus and Peter. How incredible is that? He sees the opportunity to exercise faith. So tonight we'll look at two more examples of men who exercise faith. Hopefully it will encourage us to be a people who also exercise faith. Matthew chapter 8 and verses 1 through 13 tonight. Now the first story is this. The first story Oh, both these are healings of sorts, okay? But the first story occurs immediately following the Sermon on the Mount. The Bible says, and when he came down from the mountain. So, so the greatest sermon ever recorded in the Bible and the greatest sermon ever preached, okay, was the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus comes down from the Sermon on the Mount and the Bible says, large crowds followed him. Once again, why did large crowds follow Jesus? Because whatever he did, we need to do. And large crowds followed Jesus because of what he said and because of what he did. Because of what he said 
and what he did. He preached a kind of truth that no one else was preaching. When you compare the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elite, and then you compared what Jesus was preaching, it was off the scale different. But he didn't stop there. He didn't stop with words. He put it into action. He was touching people. He was, he was loving people. He was caring about people. What he said and what he did is why people followed. Listen, a church that only has something that they say will not gather people. A church that speaks the truth, speaks the truth, and loves people will gather people. People want to go somewhere where truth is being. My goodness, there's enough garbage today. There's enough untruth today. And the world is looking, I think the world's still looking for a sense of truth from the Word of God. And they're looking for people who love people. So, so he came down off the mountain and these people followed him. And right away, garner that. Right away, a man with a serious skin disease came up. So, what is this? And most of your translations tell you, don't it? He came up with leprosy. You know, again, most of you know this, but let me go ahead and share it with you. Leprosy was a death sentence. There was no known cure. Okay? And you're an outcast from society. You're outcast from the synagogue. So right away, this man shows up, and he has leprosy. You've got to wonder a question. Was he at the Sermon on the Mount? I say yes. I say yes. But if he was, he was on the fringes. Because that's all that was allowed. He, he spent his life going through life proclaiming, I'm unclean. I'm unclean. I'm unclean. So he would contaminate no one else. And this man shows up and he kneels before Jesus. Now, do you understand? Already we're seeing a step of faith. Because this man could have been stoned. He certainly would have been ridiculed and, and rejected. But he shows up in the midst of all these crowds to see Jesus. And the reason becomes immediately apparent. He kneels before him and says, Lord, and that simply means sir. It means a show of respect. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, I want you to get this. There was never, even in this leper's mind, there was never a doubt that Jesus could. That was not in the discussion. Simply was, was he willing? Was he willing? I tried so hard to make it clear this morning. We must understand that nothing is impossible with God. I, I go back and I'll probably mess it up, David. I always manage to mess it up. But we've got to get these words changed on our wall down here. Because the, the words on the wall says, it says that faith is not believing God can, but that he will. That's not faith. That's heresy. That's like saying, okay, God, I've got faith, so you've got to. God ain't got to do nothing. He's God. Faith is believing that he can, not necessarily that he will. And the man understood, the man understood that God could, Jesus could. From what he saw already in this early ministry of Jesus, he understood that Jesus could. But the question was, was he willing? We need to reach that point in our prayer life. That's, that's what we're talking about in the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God's not an ogre God, but sometimes His will is not our will. And we've got to be willing to submit to what He says. So Lord, Lord, I know you can make me clean if you are willing. You can give me back my life if you are willing. And you just got to grasp this. Verse 3. Reaching out His hand... He touched him, saying, I am willing, 
be made clean. I want you to get this. Anyone who touched, well, anyone who touched a leper risked two things. Well, one, one was risk, one was not even risk. It was a fact. If you touched a leper, you risked being a leper. You would catch whatever the leper had. If the leper had a certain kind of skin disease, it was very contagious usually, and you would catch that skin disease. Secondly, you were unclean spiritually. You were kicked out of the synagogue. You were not allowed to be in the synagogue if you touched a leper. I want you to see something that first, as a leper, he touched the man. He didn't clean the man and touch him. He touched him and then cleansed him. I love that because, you know, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. But God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And leprosy is a picture of sin in the Bible. And even before he made this man clean, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. You want to know why? He loved him. He loved him. And you know what? He loves us. He loves us. He loves this world as messed up and crazy as it is. How much, Dwayne? So much they gave his only begotten son. And that anyone who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So he reaches out and touches him and heals this man. He was not afraid to reach out and touch the untouchable. Now, folks, this is going to be harder and harder and harder in the culture we live in. Our tendency is to gather the troops in within our four walls and have church. We live in a culture that's getting crazier by the minute. And God still calls us to reach out and touch the untouchable. If we don't touch them, how in the world can we win them? You know, that's why we had a debate whether, whether the Sunday in the Park thing was still viable. And the bottom line is, I told the committee, the bottom line is still two or three hundred people will come up and we are the only Jesus, Jesus some of them will ever see. And we won't know the results of those Sundays in the parks and the back of schools until one day we're on the other side of eternity and we can see what God did with the seed that was sown. We've got to make sure we remain a touch, that a, people, a church that touches the untouchable people. We've got to be one who reaches out. Amen? We've got to be. So Jesus did exactly that. He reached out. He said, I'm willing, and he made him clean. And guess what? Immediately, immediately, his disease was gone. Isn't that a wonderful, beautiful picture of salvation? That we were lost. We were dead in trespasses and sin. And Jesus reached out and touched us, and immediately we were made clean. You know, Isaiah said that even though our sins were like, like, like scarlet, they should be white as snow. And here I was, black in sin, blackened in sin. And he reached down and made me white as snow. He touched me, he cleansed me, and he made me whole. And you know what? He did you too. He did you too. It's just a beautiful picture. So, so then Jesus says in verse 4, he says, So Jesus told him, see that you don't tell anyone. Now there's two reasons, at least we know. One, one I, I, I read it in the commentary today and I went, how about that? You know, one is this. Jesus had to be careful because like we heard this morning, he could not be a bread Messiah. He could not, he could not run the risk of the crowd forcing his hand and trying to make him king because it wasn't time yet. It wasn't time. In fact, his kingdom would not be on this earth at this time anyway. He was destined for a cross and not a throne. 
So he had to be very careful at this early stage in his ministry how he was portrayed because people could take him. But this is the part I went, hmm, about. We've got to be careful, too, that we help people understand when we talk about God and we, and we help people, all the different things we do and the things that God does. You know, God is not just looking for needy people. God is looking for repentant people. And the reason to seek God is not so you can get some bread or get healed. The reason to seek God is I'm a sinner and I've sinned against a holy God and only he can forgive me by his son, Jesus Christ. We have to be careful with that, folks. We've got to make sure in this modern culture that we live in, we don't lose the force and the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is not about just a social ministry. Yes, we touch people, but we can't lose the power of the gospel in the sense that, you know, Jesus died that sinners could be saved. We can't lose that. What, what the church exists for today is to be the mouthpiece of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus came to die for sinners. And if you're willing to turn from your sin, repent of your sin, then he's willing to forgive you as you commit to follow him. So that's one, two reasons why he said, don't tell anyone. But he said, I want you to go to the priest and offer the gift that Moses prescribed as a testimony to them. Go to the priest and be a testimony of who I am as the Messiah, who I am. Because, you know, again, up to this point, the Bible records one person being healed from leprosy. In the older New Testament, up to this point, it is Miriam, the sister of, of Moses. So this was just an unusual, unusual thing. And by the way, did the guy keep his word? Uh, no. <laughs> if you look at Mark's gospel, he tells everybody. He tells everybody. We assume he eventually made it to the temple, but he just can't keep his mouth shut about what Jesus had done for him. Then we look at big faith number two. And this is just so unusual, and you're going to see why in just a moment. So in verse number five, the Bible says... When he entered Capernaum, now Capernaum, to, to get an understanding, Capernaum was a very was the largest fishing village on the Sea of Galilee. Two, it had a large Roman garrison, as you're going to see in just a moment. And with a Roman garrison came all the vices and the habits and the sin of Rome. So even though it was a Jewish village, it had vices from all over the world, which impacted the Jew and the non-Jew. Kind of like America. Kind of like America. So he came to Capernaum, okay? And he, and he, above all, knew that Capernaum was a needy place for the gospel. It was a needy place for God's amazing grace. Listen, Africa is a needy place for God's grace. Central Asia is a needy place for God's grace. But the United States of America is a needy place for the gospel of grace. And I'll go just a little bit further. Harrisburg, Illinois is a needy place for the gospel of grace. So he comes into this needy place. And the Bible says a centurion came to him pleading with him. Now, a centurion was a Roman officer in charge of usually about a hundred soldiers. I read today that also normally this was a, a politician's or a senator's son who was stepping up in rank. So this is kind of where you begun, where you began to be a politician and go back to Rome and make it even bigger. 
Uh, Roman centurions were professional soldiers. They were well-trained. They were great leaders. And believe me, they knew it. They knew it. So this centurion came to him. But this man is different. In fact, if you, again, if you look at the other gospel writers, it, you know, the Jewish leaders come first to Jesus and say, you need to help this man because he even builds a synagogue. He's worthy of your help. All right? So this one was a little bit different, but he still was a Roman centurion. And he came and was pleading, verse 6, Lord, my servant is lying at home. He's paralyzed and in terrible agony. I will come and heal him, he told him. So the centurion, rough, rough man, came to Jesus and literally begs for the life of his servant. And says he's home in agony, uh, he's hurting, he's paralyzed. Would you come? Actually, doesn't even say that, does he? In fact, if you think about it, he doesn't say anything. In fact, verse seven just interrupts and says, "I will come and heal him." Why do you reckon that is? Why is it that the servant, the centurion, didn't go? Would you come and heal him? You know, there's two reasons, I think, or two possible reasons. One is, maybe Jesus interrupted. You know, have you ever been pleading your case before? Mom, can, can I go out with my friends? And Mom, can I do this? And Mom, can I do that? And your mom goes, okay. And you go, really? You know, maybe that was the case. Or maybe he simply left it in the hands of Jesus. We're going to see this man's incredible faith. Maybe he said, I, here's what I've got, Jesus. And Jesus' response was, I will come and I will heal him. You ever wonder if we should pray like that too? I wonder how, how radical or how different would our prayer lives be if we simply said, God, you know that I have this need. Isn't that really what your will be done on earth as is in heaven is all about? Simply trusting God in prayer? Well, the centurion goes on. Look at verse number 8. Lord, the centurion replied, I'm not worthy. Now remember, this guy is in charge. He is large and he's in charge. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be cured. Wow. What faith. Jew or, is this guy Jew or Gentile? Gentile. Gentile. And yet, just say the word Jesus. I mean, he had heard of Jesus. He didn't know him personally. He'd heard of Jesus, heard what Jesus could do. And Jesus, all you've got to do is speak and he'll be healed. I'm not worthy. I know I'm a Roman centurion and everything. But, you know, first off, if you come to my house, they're going to call you unclean. You know, they got that church thing going on. So they would call you unclean. So Jesus, that's it. But second, I'm not even worthy. But look what he says. Look at verse 9. For I, too, am a man under authority. In other words, you, like me, are a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. And what he's saying is, as a Roman centurion, I have been granted authority by the emperor. So whatever I do, I do in the name of the emperor. That's how... When I say go, they go. And that's why when I come, they come. Because I speak with the authority of the emperor. And Jesus, you are like, like that. I may not understand it all, but you've got some kind of authority. You speak for someone. And of course, we know it was God. God the Father. 
You know, Jesus did the will of God the Father. The centurion didn't understand that. He just observed and said, you've got the same kind of authority thing going on. Okay? Here's what he says. I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Jesus, there's something going on with you that goes on in my life. You have a power and you have authority like no other man. And boy, was that true. But keep in mind, a Gentile Roman officer is speaking this powerful truth. We need to learn that truth. That Jesus is a man under authority. That he does, you know, stomp down and trample down the things that oppose us. Because he is God Almighty. He has that power and he has that authority. Now watch this. Watch this. Hearing this, Jesus was amazed. Now, several times in the Bible, and Dave, you have that, that slideshow that uses the word amazed that I love to watch, you know, the one for the, for the pageant that we do. The, oh, did I say pageant? The, the worship we do, <laughs> you know. But, but there's several things that amaze Jesus. Have you ever wondered what would amaze Jesus? Ever thought about that? What amazes Jesus? Well, look at this. Hearing this, Jesus was amazed and said to the ones that were following him, I assure you, now listen to this. I assure you, I have not found anyone. How many? None. I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. Now think of all the people he knew. Uh, think of all the religious leaders. Nope. Think of all the scribes and Pharisees. Uh, that would be a no. In fact, hang on to your hat. You see these 12 guys that are following me? At least at this point, their faith's not that big either because he says, I have not found anyone in Israel who has so great a faith. And who is it? A Roman centurion? And Jesus is amazed at the faith of a Roman centurion? How about isn't that powerful? Because he believed God, even though he was a Gentile. He believed God. In fact, Jesus throws something in here and he says, I will tell you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. And he's talking about Gentiles. In fact, you can see that in verse number 12. He's talking about Gentiles. It's, it's a beautiful picture of the vastness of the gospel. That there are many coming in. The Jews didn't understand this. There were many coming in and Gentiles would sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's many coming. The, the gospel is just, listen, the gospel is so big, it can't be just for Americans. It can't be just for white men or black men or brown men. It, it's big enough for the world. It needs to be shed, uh, shared and set around the world that God has sent a Savior to our world. It's amazing. It's just amazing. Now look at verse number 12. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a strong warning. Now he's not saying all Jews will be thrown into outer darkness. But every Jew who did not come to realization of who Jesus was as Messiah and put faith in him will be thrown into outer darkness. If any Jew is going to be in heaven, it's by faith in Jesus Christ as Messiah. It's a strong warning. Now look at me. 
It's a strong warning for Baptists too. I am so fearful the number of people who say I'm a Christian and go to church but have never put true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Their name is written down in some big fat book in the church office, but they've never turned from their sins and never received God's great grace gift. It's scary. It's scary. It's a strong warning. Being Jew won't get you to heaven. Being Baptist won't get you to heaven. Getting baptized won't get you to heaven. Doing good works won't get you to heaven. Giving money won't get you to heaven. Dressing the right way and listening to the right music and doing the right things will not get you to heaven. Jesus is the only way. The only way. So in in verse 13, then Jesus turns back to the centurion and says, Go... As you have believed, let it be done for you. And the Bible says, and his servant was cured that very moment. Great, big faith. Now, I'm going to ask you again what we started with. How is faith active in your life? In what ways do you exercise faith in God in your day-by-day life? And may I make a suggestion as pastor for Dwayne and for us that we research and determine ways and find ways that we exercise faith and that we can exercise more faith? Can we find ways where we can be a greater people of faith? You know, I'm telling you guys, I've been doing this now for about 32 years, this preacher thing. And there's a lot, of, have you ever heard the little cute saying that says that in a lot of churches, God could never show up and they wouldn't even miss him? See, in America, too, that's true like of financial needs. You know, so many churches are so blessed financially. And I'm not throwing doors in the pot. But they're so blessed financially, they don't need to depend on God. They don't need to depend on God. Should we, can we as a church, continue to find ways where we know we have to depend on God? May we be a people in a church of great faith. Great faith. Let's bow our heads. So what do you think? What do you think? What are some ways that you can point to that you know that you live by faith? That you walk by faith? That you lean on God in faith? Now, how about this? Remember, like Wednesday night? Some of you don't, you know, y'all come on Wednesday night. We We have a pretty good time on Wednesday nights. And we've been talking over and over and over again in, in, in 1 John about loving people. You know how you love someone who's not lovable? Uh, by faith. By faith. You know how you forgive someone who's not really deserving your forgiveness? By faith. By faith. See, it doesn't have to be financial. It can be, it can be in relationships. Trusting God to heal a marriage that's gone south. Trusting God to speak into your student's life or your child's life. Trusting God to change a boss that is simply unbearable. A neighbor that's unbearable by faith. Enoch was not, for God took him. And before he took him, he had this testimony that he pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God.
So, Father, thank you for your word. This is just one of those things that we need to grow in. It's, it's just like a tenet of our faith, that we're, uh, of our beliefs, that we're a people of faith. Father, help us to grow in that, even tonight. As we prepare to journey this week, Father, guide us, direct us, prompt us, speak to us, that we might be a people of faith. We love you tonight. And Jesus, we pray this in your name.